His was the singular destiny of leading the armies of his country successfully through an arduous war for the establishment of its independence, of conducting its councils through the birth of a government, new in its forms and principles, until it settled down into a quiet and ordinarily train, and of scrupulously obeying the laws through the whole of his career, civil and military, of which the history of the world furnishes no other example. Thomas Jefferson. Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Ed, we're back at it. This time we've uh, we've selected a book. Actually, you selected the book and you said, hey, this would make like 15 great episodes. And I was like, hey, great idea. <laughs> yeah, actually, Brian, you selected the book uh, when you were in the Republic of Korea and talked about doing an episode on it. And then when I got the book, it dug into it. That's when the uh, chapters came. But way back, like months and months ago, you mentioned this book to me. Well, and that's, you know, so it's funny yet is the book I mentioned wasn't this particular no. book. It's another, it's another George Washington leadership yeah. book that I had found, but you'd purchase this one. And then I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's great. Let's do that one. So, uh, but then again, Hey, it's George Washington, man, like this guy has been written about multiple times, many different ways. There's plenty of records and letters and, uh, firsthand accounts of how people are and, you know, just, you know, just tons of stuff about him that it's, you could dissect it in so many ways. Uh, he was a great military leader and president of this nation. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. That's why we talk about him so much. Um, you know, and I mean, when we were coming up now, they've changed it, but at least when I was coming up, you, George Washington's birthday was the holiday. It wasn't a president's day. Didn't exist. It was, you got his birthday off and you got President Lincoln's birthday off. So, of course, now, which we will talk about. Yeah, now we, yeah we'll talk about both. Yeah, today, now we so. get ripped off. They put them together and give us one day off instead of two. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, and I celebrate both. Both are like, both are heroes. Of mine. I mean, George Washington is my main man. Like, you like Patton. You know, Patton's your guy. My own, I'm a Patton. That's guy. my guy. <laughs> Washington is my guy. Like, he just. There's something about him that mesmerizes me um, and to learn more and more about him. And I mean, I dude, you know how many books I've bought about George Washington in the past? I don't know, two years. Just I've got audio book after audio. I got one audio book that's 40 hours long. I still haven't. Tried I have that yet, real but. the actual book. I guarantee the one you're talking about. I have the actual book of that. And I have not. <laughs> I've used it. I've used it to write papers and yeah. things, you know, to do research. But I have not. It's really thick. I have a Lincoln book that's just like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but it's full of great stuff. Yeah. No, absolutely. And And you can't study when you study warfare and stuff. For me, from a military history perspective, you know, I knew he was a general and I knew he was legendary. I didn't realize, like, there was a lot of luck into what he was as a general, but he was um, he was very uh, bold. And, and really, Brian, I can tell you throughout my research, the, the greater generals and commanders, they're always very bold, very audacious. They're not afraid to take a risk. I mean, even 
some of the ones who are scoundrels like Napoleon. They, he was not afraid, um, you know, to take a risk. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out as in because mm-hmm. I just read somebody's paper from my class as in the Nazis going into Russia. Yeah. And into the Soviet Union, you know, it was that was a bold move, except they did it in the winter, which is also a mistake Napoleon made. And that's why they don't make it to Moscow is because of the winter again. But it was bold. It just that time it didn't work out. But other stuff, you know, the D-Day landings, the D-Day landings is one of the most audacious and, and incredible things ever attempted. And nobody in their right mind would have ever said, hey, this is what we're going to do mm-hmm. against a fortified enemy. But they did, and it worked out. So, you know, and that's one one of the big uh, traits for Washington as a as a commander was his uh, boldness. Oh yeah, hey, you know, so you you just brought that up about the the uh, Germans and the Nazis and and the World War Two with Russia. And I'm I'm actually I I'm watching it again. Uh, I'm watching the World War Two Inca or NHD on Netflix, which is it's a great it's a great little series. Uh, really good. I love the fact they a lot of the real footage, but. You know, I, I was sitting there and I was, I'm, I'm listening to, um, cause I, I was doing some research on something when I was listening to a certain part and then it just caught my attention. And I want to say guys, you know, talks he was talking about, uh, the, it was Gary Sinise actually, who's doing the narration of it, which is really good, oh. you know, and he's amazing. Um, and they were talking about, it was, you know, the Russians took the brunt of the force, you know, uh, if, if, if they would have completely changed how they were going to go about this, right. They would never have tried to go east. They would just continue their wayward west. We'd be a different country today, guaranteed. Yeah. You know, I mean, the rush, I mean, they, I mean, that was the, you know, and when you look up the stats on that, so the decision-making and and the vision that, that uh, they had to go that direction, they thought one thing and then the Russians were like, ah, no, 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 yet as they would say. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> it, there was actually a non-aggression agreement between Stalin and Hitler yeah. that Hitler violates. Yeah. He has this vision of capturing Russia and it's the same thing. I don't know is about that area that, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of people, the Afghans, Napoleon, Hitler, they've all tried. Yeah. You know, so it's something about that area fighting it and fighting with Russia that appeals to people. But, yeah, it's 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 crazy to me too. Um, because again, if we don't fight and st- if the Russians don't win Stalingrad, if they don't win, win the great tank battle in Curse, yeah, it could be a whole different war even then. Uh, and if you know, if the Nazis never turned on the Russians, definitely a different, totally different outcome. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's and to be able to visualize that and say like, wow, I can't believe you know that to me. You, you start looking at things a little bit differently. You start, you know, you start looking at the, the strategic and tactical level of things and then the decision points that are made. So, like, for instance, I mean, your man Patton, he went in through the Africa way, right, and, and started coming south to north. So yeah. what type of different war would we have seen if they were spreading west and south and not going east and keeping that, that treaty? I think we would have seen a lot different war. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines, we're all supposed to do the same thing. That's fight. That's to fight America's wars and win. But 
that would have been a battle, a, a massive uphill battle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, absolutely. Hey, so <clears throat> here we are. We're about almost eight minutes into this, and we're we're discussing World War II, and we're actually supposed to be reversing even further back in time. We're talking the initiation of this great nation called America, uh, the United States of America, um, with George Washington. And for the listeners, what happened was is uh, Ed and I, we were, we were discussing a different book, not this particular book, but then he found this one, and then it just turned into a, a, a whole uh, idea and concept of <laughs> what we're going to present. And the, the actual book's name is George Washington's Leadership Lessons, What the Father of Our Country Can Teach Us about effective leadership and character. And it's actually written uh, by the executive director of Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's estate. Uh, it's James yep. Reese. So if you think about it, James Reese has a lot of insight, especially being the executive director, right? So he's probably dealing with a lot of things of the letters that came and went, a lot of the record keeping, because George was a big time writer. And so was Martha, you know, and not to mention... The other book that I was talking about that I had found, there's a I, w- I went straight to the back. I was reading something on some of the leadership lessons in there, and it was talking about his character, his presence, actually, and how President Adams, when he was in office, how his wife was visiting the Washingtons, and she was in awe of his presence. And she describes his presence in a manner that's like, even though he's not in the public eye as being the president anymore, he holds himself still true to that honorary, uh, that that life of being the president where he can't blemish that title or that that office type thing, you know? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, yeah, that, that's kind of who he was. You know, we talked about last week, we just talked about uh, on the Memorial Day episode, right? The tomb guards, how there are certain things they never do again once they get that post mm-hmm. because they don't want to blemish the office with their, you know, with their dead duty. Yeah. And it was the same thing with, with Washington. He, first of all, he's a reluctant first president, which I believe we'll talk about a little bit today. But We will. He was a little reluctant to do it. And he was basically told, yeah, you're the only guy, man. It, we need it to be you. Uh, you know, but yeah. To, he still carried himself at a high level. The other thing in this book, Brian, well, we'll get into it. Let's get into it and see yeah. if you talk about it. We'll get <laughs> yeah, we it. will. Um, but I'm telling you, I'm excited, man. I am, too, I am too because I, I loved all the ideas that were brought up about, you know, just his his leadership lessons. Uh, but to give you guys an idea out there listening, so this is actually going to be like a 15-part series. Now, it's not going to be in direct order like, okay, this week is the first lesson, next week is the next. We're going to bust it up with other stuff, but we're going to try to kind of incorporate as much as possible throughout the year and try to present to you um, his leadership lessons. And here's the order of them. I'm going to go quickly through them so you kind of have an idea of what you expect. So the first one's vision, then honest, uh, ambition, courageous, uh, self-control, personal responsibility, which I love, uh, determined, uh, strong work ethic, uses good judgment, learns from mistakes, humble, does the research and development, values presentation, exceeds expectations, and has heartfelt faith. So those 15 areas that I just brought up, those are what we're going to cover throughout this series of Washington, George Washington's leadership lessons. But our very first one is going to be on vision. And before we get into George Washington's vision, 
I want to get into a vision you had, Ed, that you just spoke to me about and was dealing with riding bikes. You know, you and your wife, you, you go ride on Sundays together, but you said on Saturday you went for a ride and you were chasing segments. segments. Yeah. Why? So why <laughs> would you be chasing these segments? So if you use a, the Strava app, which we are not affiliated with in any way with Strava, the Strava app has certain segments that people have marked. A lot of them are hill climbs. Some of them are descents. But if you look at it, the majority of them are difficult stretches um, that they do. But basically what you can do is um, you can measure yourself against others. So I, I do pay for Strava. I have the, the premium uh, app. With that, I can see people in my age group and see their times on that segment so I can compare myself and where I'm at as, with my effort. I can see people in my weight range. I can see people, if you're in a group on Strava, like a cycling group, you can see people who have ridden that effort from that cycling group. So it lets you compare. And uh, so, yeah, I definitely, some days I just go out and I just ride for riding. And some days I go out and I go um, chasing segments. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, so there's a short segment and it's, it's, a, it's a cool segment. So it's a quarter mile. But it's on a bike trail along the Autobahn. So it's right beside the Autobahn, right? Oh, wow. And it's it's a quarter mile, just a sprint kind of flat. And it's called Beep Beep, I'm a Car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the uh, top time is like, I think, in the 32nd range for that quarter mile. Right. I was trying to make top five. And I missed it by a second of getting in the top five and achieving my goals. So you can set goals for yourself and you'll say, hey, in 30 days, I'm going to ride this segment in this time. And then it, it'll actually give you training plans to train for that and whatever. But it, it, it keeps you focused, having that vision of what you want to achieve. And it reminds you, hey, you know, you want to ride this segment? You haven't rode it in two weeks or whatever. So. Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of Strava is those uh, segments and chasing them. And again, it's the the vision of being successful at that that makes you really push yourself physically. Yeah, and and that's the, I say I, the reason I brought it up is because obviously you had a vision of what you wanted to achieve, right? And so you you set that as, that vision as a goal, and then as a goal, you keep pursuing towards it until you reach that goal. And that's kind of like. To help people understand, you know, we've, we we actually did an episode uh, not too long back that influence is vision, um, but it's to help people understand that the vision is kind of like the start of the momentum towards achievement, right? So, yeah, that, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, brother. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. I, I don't mind. I, I enjoy them. I actually, <laughs> real funny story, took my wife out one day and we went out and just rode the ride. And I was so disappointed because the segments were really bad, like times that I went out the next day and rode again without her so that I could up my status on the segments. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm a stats guy. I enjoy yeah. stats and, and it's self competition. You know, exactly. And that's, and that is part of the things that I like about like things like that where you're doing things on your own and you're measuring your own progress. Now, it's fun to measure against other people, but. If you could say, hey, I did it one second faster today, and then tomorrow I did it even one second even faster, and then, you know, and by Friday I'm five seconds faster, you're like, that. this is called achieving, you know, I'm achieving something, so, and that's awesome that you you do that, man. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's fun. 
All right. So leadership lesson one. Yes. And a leader has a vision. So we've talked, like I said before, we talked about vision, but we're actually going to get into like the different areas of vision that George Washington, and there's going to be some stuff brought up. There, People are going to be questioned and whatnot, but we're just going to go through this chapter. I'm trying not to read a lot out of it, but there are some areas that I actually highlighted inside my Kindle app here that I'm looking at that I felt like, okay, yeah, that definitely needs to be talked about. But to kind of, let me set the stage here. Let me help All people right. kind of understand where we're going. Uh, many Americans associate George Washington with strong and steady leadership. He bravely led the Continental Army in the War of Independence, and he then accepted the call to be the first president of our new nation. But there was much more to Washington's leadership. In fact, very few people perceive of Washington as the creative, big thinking, inspiring, visionary leader he actually was. You know, Ed, I when, when I read that, when I started off um, to read this chapter, and the chapters aren't long; they're actually really short. Yeah. When I first started off, like I thought to my, I thought to myself, like, how do how do people not see that? You know what I mean? Like, like when I think of him and his position, and all, and we're gonna get into like the things that he was thinking about, and he was trying to put into play, and people were laughing at and scoffing him about. But how do you not think of him as creative, big thinking, inspiring, visionary leader? He actually was. You know, for instance. Crossing the Delaware, man. Like you in the at the time frame, crossing the Delaware in itself to say, hey, listen, we're gonna cross this river and then we're gonna go fight, you know? Basically, it's it kind of reminds me of uh the storming of Normandy on D-Day, right? We're gonna cross this big giant water and we're gonna fight from the water inland. And in a sense, it's kind of what he was doing, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's absolutely, and, and against the fortified uh, enemy, too. I mean, but with Washington, mm-hmm. the general, right, he's fighting against the big, bad British military. Like, these guys are the powerhouses of the day. They're an empire, you know, of the day. And now you've got this ragtag group yeah. that is, you know, is going to fight them and 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 believe they can win from the beginning, uh, although everything is stacked against them, and, and, and you know, as they say in sports, on paper, there's no way the British lose. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yeah, they should have won everything. You know, all the wars are all the battles. So yeah, his vision of what needed to be done, especially as leading leading that army, uh, he saw something that a lot of people didn't see, and he knew exactly what needed to be done at certain times to inspire those around him and influence them actually. Uh, so there was a, basically in 2000, there was a lecture uh, at George Washington club in, in Wilmington, Delaware. And they, they discussed the three key traits of what a visionary leader is. And we're going to kind of hit upon that throughout this chapter, but it has a, a far reaching view, a meticulous organized kind of mentality and is personally persuasive. I think that that last part, that personally persuasive, I think that's a yes. big part of being a good visionary because I could say all day long, we're going to the moon tomorrow, right? And, and is that really, I mean, you and I, you and I are going to the moon tomorrow, Ed. I don't think that's real, right? That that's I can't even persuade yeah, that no. because one, I don't <laughs> even want to leave the planet like that. You know what I mean? I, I enjoy it here. I don't want to go to the moon. Uh, but <laughs> but let me say, I'm, what I'm getting at is, is, he knew what had to be said at the right time 
or a lot of this stuff wasn't going to happen. We're talking about, you know, all these colonies that had to come together at some point and then they had to create a union and then that union yeah. had to fight back together. I mean, that's that's a big piece, brother. Yeah, I think so when I when you say personally persuasive, so I think of like the new coach, right? Comes in and says, you know, we've been a passing football team for years and the new coach comes in and says, okay, we're going to be a running football team. And he has to sell that and get that buy-in from the, the franchise in order to be successful. And, and with George Washington having that ability to be personally persuasive, he had to sell the idea to these farmers, these settlers that mm -hmm. they could stand up to the mighty British empire and gain their independence. And, and so, I mean, I don't think he had a dry erase board or a chalkboard to do it with, no. but words, his, his, uh, you know, his deeds uh, and his words probably inspired them and, and made them believe. And, you know, once you win a battle here and a battle there, next thing you know, you're like, I think we could do this. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's where his, you know, they also talk about his charisma multiple times in his chapter, oh, yeah. which yes. obviously he had to have had, you know. Yeah. No, and, and I, you said that, and I literally had just scanned over an area that was – I was getting ready to bring up, but he, he talks about the vision of the leader in the highest degree and their personal charisma that yeah. when he said personal charisma, because really you own your own charisma. Uh, certain people have charisma in different ways. They have different ways of going about it. And, and it could be dependent upon the industry they're in, the type of uh, society norms that's created around them, or even just the, the ability to, uh, to know others through emotional intelligence, which we've discussed many times. What I thought was funny is it kind of it kind of leads right into how he was thinking like an American before that was even a thing, right? And he had sent this letter, yes. and in this letter he had wrote actually the establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment, which I love that part, for promoting human happiness by re reasonable compact in civil society. So he he literally called. The forming of our new government, the 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 how we're going to do it, the last great experiment. So he was he he was already he was already kind of titling it as an experiment. Um, hey hey, this may or may not work, but this is what we're visualizing it. You know what I mean? Like so, he's trying to persuade people that way. I thought that was kind of unique in his uh, language to kind of help persuade people in the American way. Yeah, and I, th I think too that you see throughout this chapter and, and some of these other sections his, per, you know, his ability to be persuasive as well. It's going to talk about like forming a government, and you know, we're coming from Britain, and we're like, we don't need somebody telling us how to live our lives. And and you know, Washington, he's like, mm, all right, well, let me. How do I make you think you do need somebody so we can make this happen? So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I saw the great experiment too, and they and they put it in quotes for a reason, right? To kind of make it stand yeah. out even more, I guess. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I mean, to kind of call it the great experiment, though that's like the very next section we're going to lead into with this chapter because he it's it basically called the idea and ideal of true independence. Mm -hmm. And so part of this vision of this great experiment, right? So I'm, we, we are under control, right? We're under control by this foreign, this other government that's not on the same soil as us. Now, were they of that government? Yes. So, so the British rule um, and whatnot, Many of the people that were now America uh, or was was considered in America 
were from there, but there were also many that were from other countries like Spain and in Ireland, all these different stuff, all areas that, you know, the British wanted to keep control over in a sense through America. The whole idea and the, the vision that he had was, is that, you know, we were going to be free, you know, United States free from this foreign control, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's it, kind of like, I kind of see it as this way, Ed, you grow up in a household, right? Mom and dad are your, or your your parents or or uh the your ruler so to speak and you grow under their rules and all this stuff well a lot of times you form your own stuff off of what you learn from your parents right you so, so for instance i may brush my teeth before i go to bed every night i mean this is a simple way or or i i i try to get to bed at a decent hour because i know the very next day and that's through you know many times of experimenting, staying up too late, not being able to wake up early. Okay, now I know I need to get to bed at a certain time. Oh, that's why they made me to go to bed at a certain time so I can get up for school and all that. You know what I mean? So we learn yeah. lessons that way. I feel like yeah. the form of our country uh, under Washington uh, was the same way, so to speak. All right. So, and, and with that, Ed, so in a sense, you look at it. As the colonies desired to be let alone by British much like we we often say, hey, you know, as children, leave me alone. I want to do yeah. my own thing. We learned our lesson. But at the same time, so individual Americans desire to be left alone by their government uh, to pursue wealth and happiness on their own terms. Washington recognized the practical side of this vision that a central government would be necessary to hold the whole thing together. See, you need a, you need something to hold it together. Yeah. But he never lost sight of the importance of an overriding vision for a free America. So you still have to have, you know, there's still that idea of you still have to have like a governing body. You still have to have some yeah. rules to kind of keep things together, you know, it'd be that small glue. But it's not supposed, like, for instance, it's not supposed to be an epoxy over the entire thing. It's just glued pieces here and there, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So this is the essence of big picture thinking and and that's you know i was think i was sitting here thinking about you in your example of your parents but you know your parents teach you to say yes sir no sir right and you still do it you you do it as an adult because they've they've ingrained that in you um and then you know like here you know you, you when you were a kid you wanted your parents to let me make my mistakes and then when you're an adult and you've got kids that's when that you kind of you know re- for back to that and go, wow, I do remember that. And if you don't, that's where the dis- you have a disconnect with your, you know, your children. If you don't remember what it was like, and, and we say it in the military all the time, right? Oh, he doesn't remember what it was like to be a specialist. And, and that's a disconnect. So that's kind of a big picture kind of understanding that I think that is, it's really important. We've talked about that before too, Brian, is talking about understanding the big picture and how important that is and, and what role it plays. Oh yeah, definitely. And that, and that's the point, you know, it's the, the bigger picture of things and seeing that we've, we talk about it all the time, like, you know, at different levels. I, I want to say I brought it up a couple episodes ago about the different levels of seeing that bigger picture, you know, and having that scope and of, you know, the, the junior individuals, they only see it from a certain height, like five feet off the ground or five feet, two mm-hmm. inches where versus you and I, we see it more like 5,200 feet because we have such a larger scope of responsibility and roles and all that stuff. And I really think that in that same way, George knew that, right? And he knew that by putting a system in place, 
putting a system in place was a big, big deal. So especially, yeah. he wasn't, you know, and and I want to say, you know, Washington's willingness to serve as president for the 1787 Constitutional Convention, um, it's it is basically kind of an idea of like how far reaching his understanding was of the need uh, for this particular structure of the organization. He he knew already. Hey, we've got to do X Y Z to make this work. Uh, and to go further on, uh, right here it says Washington knew that the only way for his new country to survive and prosper was to establish a clear set of written rules that all 13 states would agree to follow. So he knew that he had to have buy-in, you know, had to get yeah. some ownership in there. We talk about it all the time <laughs> when we refer back to the extreme ownership of things, but he had to get them to buy into it. And what one of the best ways to is kind of set the ball in motion, get everybody's ideas, and then include everybody's ideas into the overall arching idea yeah and now everybody's like well i can't let that fail that was my idea you know what i mean yeah and i think that the other part especially at washington where that becomes super important is if you think about it right like we just came from you know what we viewed as tyranny and being ruled and and, and kind of you know the uh being oppressed by the british and you know washington if he jumps in too hard with this putting a system in place he could give that feeling again and we could go right back to square one. So it's also a balancing act, which he obviously did very well. Um, but this is something that he must have wrestled with in his mind is, okay, what's the balance between getting something in place to, you know, a system and not making everybody feel like we're trying to go right back to where we were. Yeah. Uh, so part of that is that compromise, right? Yeah. To me, you have to know how to compromise. Even as a leader, Washington's basically kind of going into this knowing I got to get everybody involved. I, I got to get them on top of this, man. Yeah, no, I, I can't tell them you're going to do this because then he is acting just like the British government that they're trying to get away from. So he had to get them, you know, to agree by compromising and, and compromising to certain things. Okay, so hey, yeah, you know, we still have got to have some type of rules. We still have to have some type of taxation so we can help fund this and all that. So, I mean, that that's an important piece. Yeah, no, it is. And then if you think like from a everyday perspective, like now, Brian, what do we do? We, we, we have SOPs, standard operating procedures. If you go to a section or an area, like let's think back to, you know, Brian going to his first like shop that he's going to work in, right? Oh, there's no standard operating procedures. Okay. Well, we've got to develop that. And, you know, and then we want it to be a joint effort. So right now I'm actually, I just got a new officer who's going to be working with me. So there's some things that I didn't think was working. He's already observed that they weren't, he didn't think they were working very well. And him and I are now working on a standard operating procedure and a continuity book uh, to, to put some systems in place to make that better. You know, I told you, like, I've got people willy nilly calling um, you know, calling embassy saying, Hey, we want to come down for a staff visit and not coordinating through my office, which is really our, one of our biggest jobs is to coordinate those visits. Um, so we have to put some things in place to stop that. So even in your organization, whether it be military, civilian or whatever, you have to have some kind of a system in place or people are going one wild, you know, uh, dominoes. It, it could be a, something like dominoes and I, I love pizza man, pizza, but if you don't have a good <laughs> schedule 
of what drivers work which sections or whatever, however you work that, if you don't have a system in place, then you may not meet your little timelines to deliver pizza on one side of town because all you focused on is the other side of town because you didn't have a system. Hey, this, you know, these drivers, you've got this, these sections, this area, you've got this area. I, I do believe back in the day, if you went into Domino's, they would have a city map, town map, and they would literally have it color coded. These drivers have red. These drivers have the blue section, but they had a system which enabled them to perform better. So any organization, even, I mean, George Washington did it here and that's what we're doing. We're pulling lessons from him. Yeah. But for our listeners, I mean, make sure there's a system in place. And if there's not, Hey, develop one and work with your team to develop. Don't dictate to them what that system would be. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so you say that and where, you know, right here, it talks about, interestingly, Washington wanted to remove some of the ambiguities that still exist today in the final document. That's the kind of detail-oriented thinking he was. So he was he knew how some of he he well, he didn't know, but he felt through his vision how some of those things would affect the country further down the road. So others recognize, however, yeah. that leaving some issues open to interpretation was a positive, not a negative, particularly in the terms of the document's longevity, right? So I mean, look at it. Over 200 years now, well over 200 years. Washington was the first to admit that the written document formulated under his leadership was far from perfect. In his typical fashion, Washington wanted to keep people's expectation on a modest level. Still, this magnificent document has never been uh, eclipsed as a roadmap for democracy. It has Washington's stamp on it. It's got vision but it also works on a particular level. And I think, so when I read that, right, Ed, I think of this. It's got vision. And the reason it has the vision is because it is a living document in a sense. And the reason I say it's living is because we continue, can, we can add things to it. It allows us the, uh, the right to add things to it and not have to reform a whole new government, right? We don't have to go through right. a whole... Um, war of wars type thing within America. We could reference civil war in a sense. Uh, we don't have to change what is there. Instead, what it does is it, it prompts us to say, okay, well, he, they said we can have these, these, and this to allow us to build XYZ, right? So it'll, it, it's that forward thinking of, of, I know we don't have all the rights in the world, but we can work towards that. And we're going to kind of talk about rights and human rights here in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, um, with the constitution, like there are some things, some things are still hotly contested because like, people are trying to figure out what did they mean by whatever, you know, we hear it a lot, especially right now of gun rights and, and the right to uh, gun ownership. We hear it a lot with that kind of stuff. Like what did they mean by bear arms? And, you know, you know, hear the debate over, did they mean a handgun? Did they mean a rifle? Did they mean, you know, obviously they didn't mean assault weapons and no. at that point, no. or did they just mean a gun period? You know? So it did have some language in it that we still like, absolutely. That is the same document, which I got to see a, a couple of years ago. You saw the, That's real the one? same document, the real one. I saw the real one. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I saw it at the national archives. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty cool. But yeah, it, so it's still the same document, 
But I mean, obviously we've made some stuff changes, you know, uh, and we're going to talk about one of them here in a moment, one of the really big ones. And then of course, changes for women's suffrage and all that good stuff too, Mm -hmm. as well. But the original document is still there. Exactly. And and a lot of that, you know, it's still in place. So, and and that's what that's, and that's the point about it. Like understanding his vision with all this, Ed, you know, that, that it opened it up. He saw, and he saw how much it would open it up. And he saw in the manner of, for instance, he bought 70,000 acres of land. That's what he bought that because he knew that it would turn into something because of the ability of the freedoms that we're going to give, you know, basically he basically invested in the uncertain future. I mean, he, they started this, he bought the, that 70,000 acres who who was to know, you know, that maybe uh, that they wouldn't attack back and try to take America back over from Britain at some point, you know, that they wouldn't quit, right? That he wouldn't lose that land or that, um, you know, that things couldn't happen and that would cause them to lose the land and have to parcel it up to other people and stuff like that. But he saw that in that in realizing, hey, listen, I've got to make an investment in this country. And part of that investment would be to purchase land at a large amount. Um, so as an example of Washington's far-reaching thinking and his will, he listed many parcels of his land, often emphasizing his belief in their future value. Uh, when talking about 373 acres that would become the town of Nansmon, Virginia, he wrote that he had purchased the tracks on full conviction that they would become valuable. The acres were on a river that could facilitate commerce, right? So he knew that 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 river would have some type of commerce that would go through it and to help sustain life. And he described them as capable of great improvement and from its situation must become extremely valuable. So he saw it in the writing. He, he realized, okay, hey, there's a river that runs through this land. That river is going to be a way of transportation because then boats were the bigger thing of transportation. They didn't have mm-hmm. the trains and planes and automobiles that we have today, which, by the way, trains, plays automobiles. Great John Candy movie. Um, <laughs> but, but they didn't have that to kind of help establish routes and stuff. Instead, they had, uh, they had horses, carriages, and boats. That's pretty much all they had to get them places. And boats would be the fastest way of all the ways, right? Then that the boats were our airplanes for them, right? And he knew that. And that's what that's what's remarkable of is he's like, you know what? Hey, uh, I better uh, go ahead and get this started because this is going to help X, Y, and Z to help with the commerce and to help build. That. To me, that's remarkable thinking. Yeah, no, it is because he didn't know how much the country was going to expand. And, you know, these are the things that he was looking at with this kind of his what was his vision. And then they don't know how far the country even goes. Yeah. At at this point, you know, they know it's something else beyond the borders. But what? And and years and years later, exploration and, and other stuff, you know, leads to us expanding, obviously. But right here, he's looking at it. And, you know, and I like that it says. Land will become America's second most important resource. Yes. Of course, the first was people. Yes. And he understood that that was a resource. And that's why he treaded lightly and didn't want to force a government on the people because he knew how important they were. He wanted their buy-in, man. And that's the whole point. Uh, And talks about right here, growth. Yep. You know, final pages of of this book, we're going to probably get into the growth of one. But 
uh, he was constantly experimenting with crop rotations and things like that. So he was he was working on the farming side of things, but did he do it himself? No, he had the people, those people to help him, and there was ways to go about it. And he understood that people of our nation are our biggest commodity. The the thoughts, ideas, actions, mm-hmm. the individual visions of those people will be what helps it grow. You know, uh, where would America be today without the industrial age? Right. Um, that was, that was one of the biggest booms we had in this country that kind of catapulted us, uh, as a superpower in the world. Cause before, before the industrial age, we were just, we were here, but that's what developed it the most. And then you, you know, um, Ed, have you seen the, uh, the, I think it's called the story of us or, it's the one about America, the building of America. And it goes through like the different, I have it. No. Yeah. It goes through like Rockefeller and Carnegie and uh, Vanderbilt, all those different, uh, you know, very, very rich men of that era. Uh, that would have been more of the industrial age, but you start looking at things as like, okay, wow. So they had vision on how, now there were some things that probably should have been uh, looked at as, okay, yeah, that guy's he's, and, and they did look at it actually as they're <laughs> monopolizing. Right. Which kind of created yeah. like this, okay, they're the only one that can provide this so they can raise the price as high as they want, you know, because a monopoly, in a sense, a monopoly is just that. It it will allow you to charge out the you-know-what for anything, and people basically have to pay for it or they don't get it. And, you know, so and especially things like oil and whatnot. Um, but, you know, he, he looks at growth, um, and the, he wholeheartedly believed that America's farmers would be the world's best and we had some of the best richest fertile lands to use this with and you know he became he he also a storehouse and granary to the world right so you think about it he looked at america by by inducing new farming techniques and and uh just different things of farming his vision was that we would be a storehouse and granary for the world. So the world would come to us to get this stuff. And so I look at that, right, Ed? And I think about some of the things that are in America today. So for instance, there are countries that own lands here in the States that the United States has agreed to allow them to purchase for use because of the ability to farm in America. And you can look at areas where um, there's like if you look from um, Google Earth or just Google itself, uh, mm-hmm. you can see like these big circles all over like the the western states uh, where they're farming and this stuff is grown. And obviously, oh, so the, the the country has to pay for that land. They have to pay the export tax, and then I'm not sure if they pay the import tax on their other side. But that's that's growth. That that's right there. The storehouse and granary to the world. That's what that is. And him to know that, that's that's like really far reaching and thinking ahead, my man. Yeah, he he was like you said, so we're talking all about visionary, and he was absolutely a visionary. He he had an idea what was gonna happen. And at that point, I mean, what else was there really? Like you said, the industrial revolution changes things, but at this point, you know, agriculture is it. Tobacco down there in the Carolinas, tobacco is it. And and that's where the money's going to come from, and that's why it was important for him to understand it and, and try to have that vision of where the economy was going to go. Yeah, exactly. Well, 
now we're going to get into um i i would this is going to be a touchy area for some people to listen to and they may argue one side or another and that's fine you know i think that's the whole point that's the big visionary part of washington's uh vision of america as he's you know he was he sat as the chair president for the continental uh basically the the continental congress of building building our uh nation is what it is to allow for further growth. Mm. Washington's unvoidable regret. Here we go. As a slaveholder, Washington evolved morally to the point where he believed that slavery as an institution could not coexist with a true Republican form of government. Hence, his long-term vision of America did not include slavery. So right there, his long-term vision didn't include it, right? But we're going to get into the point that he did have slaves. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you're right. It, so it's that's cool to uh, to kind of note that his vision did not include that. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, it, obviously the agriculture and the stuff kind of leads to it, but the, what Washington vision was not that. No, it's not. And and we're going to talk to about, you know, like some of the circumstances and whatnot here in just a moment. But he recognized its inhumanity. And even when his his slaves, because he did have slaves. Now, he, he actually came into a marriage yeah. with Martha. They both had slaves. Right. And many of those were inherited. He recognized its inhumanity. And even when his slaves were part and parcel of the operations of Mount Vernon, Washington's behavior illustrated his broader understanding of the regrettable institution of slavery, right? And I would have to say this, slavery started before America was formed. That was was going on before America was formed. It was just something that wasn't addressed at the time. Uh, for certain reasons, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But uh, Washington once wrote to a visiting Englishman, I can clearly foresee that nothing but the rooting out of slavery can perpetuate the existence of our nation. He says, I can clearly see this. I am I envisioning the idea of a free America. Before those yeah. words were said by uh, Abraham Lincoln, before those words were ever said by... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Before those words were said, probably two days ago, after you know the things that have been going on across America uh, that are really kind of like the high point of there's a it's almost like a bubble's about to burst. People people have been you know put into this confinement of things and something tragic really happened, which you know I would speak against. Uh, but before that was ever said, he was already stating, "I can see America as a place." Uh, that will become better once we get rid of this. Yes. And and that's, yeah, especially in his, so this is one of the things that you and I were talking about before the show, Brian, like you got to put it in context of his time, not our time. And for him to say that in context with when, you know, this is occurring, that's big because Huge. it was such a, it was such a part, just an accepted part of society at that point. And I mean, and into the 1860s, it continues to be, but if you compare this situation, right, this piece of the book with now, yes, then it makes him look, it, it sheds a different light on George Washington. But if you un- just try to understand what this culture was then, yep. then I think that really goes a long way in understanding that he wasn't a, a terrible person. 
he even says he's he said he envisioned not having that be a part of America. You know, and and, and so I think that's important for the listeners. Exactly, Ed. and that's what I'm, and that's what I'm like. I'm trying to get. I want to get in the mind frame of Washington, his time frame with this to understand his vision, because saying slavery is bad now is completely looked at differently today by the majority of society yeah. than saying slavery is bad then. I would definitely say that there's there was slavery around the world then. I mean, there is there's still slavery going on uh, across the world now in certain areas, but around the world, and where slaves were taken from, or weren't just taken from, they were sold into slavery from their own tribes or their own colonies or whatever it was they were a part of, and then brought into an, a, another place where it's continued on, and, and it's it's just it's like never ending. So. Him speaking that in itself is almost like a form of uh, uh, being an early on civil rights leader, in a sense. Because you have to think about it, everything was accepted then as you know that was okay. Where today we look as like, no, it's not. Of course, it's not. Well, yeah, it's because we've evolved as thinkers and as we've also evolved in the human rights aspect of things. But he was talking about human rights then. Yeah, that's what's so awesome about it. So, and and it even says here. You know, that he kind of looked at his, the overseers of the slaves he did have, and he scolded them for viewing the slaves as if they were draft horses or oxes. Yes. He scolded them for not viewing them as humans. So, again, this, I think this speaks to, you know, the situation he was in, but who he was despite what the culture, accepted culture was. So, let's look at it this way. If they were slaves to him, right, then supposedly everything he owned or they owned, he owned. But it says right here, Ed, that they grew their own produce, which he, he was like, yeah, grow your own, you know, because obviously they had to have permission. Then he was like, yeah, grow your own, which Washington sometimes also purchased from back from them, right? Mm. Yeah. And he trusted individual slaves to travel to nearby towns and pla- plantations. So it was a thing of he was he was on a different level of the idea of slavery. Like he it was I get this feeling from Ed and, and maybe I'm wrong. I get this feeling that it was almost like he knew it was bad outside of his realm. But within the realm that he could control, he tried to make it feel like a free America for everyone to include slaves within his realm of control, especially at Mount Vernon. Yeah. And and that's just kind of how I see that, though. Yeah. No, it, and, and I think, so, the other point that we raised, Brian, is, you know, we talk about George Washington as a visionary, right? But I think if you look at what yes. the outcome is in the 1860s when Abraham Lincoln does emancipate the slaves, right? The 100 years later. Yeah the, con- yeah, the country divides. Now there's this major war. Okay, well, the country was 90 years old at that point. So the war, you know, the war divides the country and it does a lot of damage that Reconstruction has to fix afterwards. But now imagine an infant country, the United States in the 1700s, in their infancy. And, and what if he says, you know what, I'm the president, there's no more slavery, and it divides, right? Maybe the United States never comes to be if he takes such a harsh stand. And as a visionary leader, it's quite possible that he understood this is not the time. The time will come, but now is not it. Maybe 
you know, it's hard to really, you know, all you can really do is uh, uh, offer a, a hypothesis as to what he probably saw. But, you know, I, I mean, I like my man, George. I like to think that that's what it was, is he knew it was wrong. He just knew now was not the moment. No, exactly. And, and that's the whole point is we were a fragile yeah. country at the time. We were, I mean, you think about it, we're 13 colonies turned into 13 yep. states, right? Uh, we're, we're seceding, in a sense, from British rule, which the British rule had great control over the world. We're talking them because they had been in multiple comp- uh, countries. They had colonies around the world type situation. Yeah, probably one of the most powerful nations. They yeah. were at the time. Yes, absolutely. And so we're pushing off on them. At the same time, if you're if I'm gonna push away from them, I how do I how do I keep everybody informed? Well, it's I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Now, have I made bold statements here and there? Yes, because that's how he conveyed it is his personal feeling and vision that will soon it'll soon propel into an actual way of life of hey, we gotta eradicate this. But they're so fragile, right? We can't because I mean, you said it right there. Abraham Lincoln tried it a hundred years later, and next thing you know, we have complete uh, just war, North versus mm-hmm. South, brothers versus brothers, cousins versus cousins, all kinds of things. So he had that vision of listen, okay, I have to choose here or here. I have to pick the worst of two evils to hang on to, type of thing, right? And basically, he made that choice to to hold on to the Union and try to push it that way. But I can tell you right now, it. There are multiple things he did to kind of help establish the fact that he wasn't going to break up uh, f- families. And when I say break up families, like, for instance, when him and Martha married and they brought their slaves together, well, those slaves also ended up marrying each other and things like that. If if he were to, let's just put it this way, during that time, during those years, when he was to die and he did his last will and testament, if he didn't, if he didn't, uh, basically give her the slaves in the will and free them. They would have to leave that, that plantation. They would have to go be on their own. They would be busting up families because they would still be the ones that were owned by Martha, so to speak. And then the ones that he owned had got to go on. And, and I don't like to say owned cause I just, it drives me nuts when I hear that, but that would create a whole rigmarole of issues. So instead he was like, all right, well, Martha, Hey, you keep them. Keep them all here, and you know, and that way they can stay together, and they can be families that they need to, right? And that was a big thing during that time, and for Martha, as a woman, during that time frame, right? Let's let's talk about women's suffrage too. For her to be able to own and, and take on that ownership to be able to continue what George started, that was a big thing. I mean, that was huge. Uh, but let's let's just let's dive a little bit further now. I think we kind of hit our point on this slavery thing, Ed. Let's talk about the first president. You want to lead us through this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I this is uh, actually a quote from George Washington to Catherine Macaulay Graham in 1790. I walk on untrodden ground. There is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn into precedent. And the reason I, that quote is important is he's the first president. Every president after him, he's the yardstick. He's what they're going to measure him. You know, they're going to measure themselves against success, failure. Poor John Adams has to follow this guy. Like, he is the guy at that point. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, now cultures change, societies change. It's a different, you know, different world. But 
I am sure for years presidents were like, well, you know, George Washington when he was the president. And and I think that, yeah, I think, oh, that yeah. He, <laughs> but I think that this statement here shows that he understood that he was self-aware. Mm-hmm. He knew, and this goes back to what you said. So he's also the yardstick for what a former president should act like, right? Earlier in the episode, you talked about him and how uh, Adams, yep. wife said he carried himself. I think that that is just, uh, uh, it speaks volumes to his self-awareness and his self-regulation to say, Hey, I'm the first president. I am what they expect a president to be moving forward. When the next guy comes in, I am what they expect him to be and so on. So I think that of all the leadership lessons, this one is crucial for, for who George Washington was. And that's a heavy, that's a heavy burden, man. You're the first, you're the first. And, and, and you know, we envisioned that this is going to go on for, you know, years and years we're gonna have presidents for hundreds of years but you will always be the first you will always be the guy that put the you're the cornerstone of the presidency is how i would uh probably put it oh yeah exactly now and think about it this too so they were trying to come up with a title for the office Mm -hmm. right and he rejected you know a lot of that like emperor (laughs) or your highness or all these he said no no this is not what this is I'm a servant of the people. I need to serve the people. Like so he was thinking way beforehand uh, how this office needed to be formed to last. Instead of mate, you know, he didn't want, you know, he wanted some type of democracy. And we're going to get into that too. He he wanted, you know, a, a republic who who basically uh they voted on the the right person to take that job. It shouldn't go through bloodlines, things like that. So the fact that he actually, he is the one that said, no, I, I think we should call it the president of the United States, president of the United yeah. States, not the king, you know, or anything like that. I think that's a big piece, brother. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, now we're going back to the ego and, you know, he, he didn't allow his ego to get the best of him. And, oh yeah, emperor, you know, emperor Washington, that does sound pretty good. He, he said, no, no, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's too much. So refusing a third term. Just think about that. Yes. He could have stayed in that position, right? But the right vision of things, and, and that's why we keep we keep hitting on that, that word vision. The right vision of things is like, no, um, I did my time. Let's let somebody else do it. It so he refused his third term. And we and, and to have that and to say, you know what? It's somebody else's turn. And then what you just said about like, I guarantee you he was, you know, people were comparing the next, you know, he's like number two president, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're number two actually you know joe george our first one he didn't do it like that i mean that's kind of like a if you're the president and you keep hearing well george didn't do it that way you're gonna like you know what forget that noise you know type thing but he refused that third term looking ahead to the future of our government and insisted on the peaceful transfer of power to a new generation of leaders yeah all right yeah by doing so not only did he follow through on his promise to the people he also ensured that our future leaders will be chosen on merit what i said earlier about voting Mm -hmm. rather than on bloodlines or military rank they would truly be chosen by the people washington trusted the people and the system and he envisioned a nation that could fulfill a greater promise and potential than any nation in history so he he already kind of said now 
people could argue that today the way things are done and the the candidates that people have and all that you know that come up that oh, it's not really fair. I, I got I got what's going on, but we're talking a two hundred year deal here, over two hundred now. Right. That they they enacted and has been working many many years, and we're still we're still you know since we started and like I said, the industrial age is kind of what kind of gave us that. Uh, that oomph to get us on top of the map is like, hey, we're we're a superpower. But a lot of the things that were that enabled the industrial age was formed during that initial building of our country. Uh, so designing for the future. Ah, this is one of my favorite parts because did you like this? Well, I'm very passionate about uh, Washington D.C. Yes. And that's why. So when I thought about, you know, as soon as I read that, Ed, I thought, I wonder how much Ed is going to tell us how much he loves Washington, D.C. <laughs> I literally, I literally thought that because at some point uh, it, it says, uh, oh, what does it say? Uh, Washington, he outmaneuvered the naysayers, including Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson was against Washington's layout and design because he particularly was a big part of the layout and design of how Washington, D.C. is. Yeah. Uh, I felt the plans were far too grandiose, uh, far too reminiscent of the royal courts of of Europe. As a national, uh, let's see, National Register of Historic Places explains on its website, in the context of the United States, a plan as grand as 200-year-old city of Washington D.C. stands alone in its magnificence and scale. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that, that you know, when I saw that magnificence of scale, Ed, I thought, I wonder how much Ed is going to tell us how magnificent Washington D.C. is. I don't let us let us hear. You you already know it. You know it's magnificent. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, so he goes, but he goes on more, Ed, and and you, maybe you can test it because I'm I've only visited Washington once, right? I only went to, the, and really, I just went to Arlington. But he says right here, but as the capital of a new nation, its pos, position and appearance had to surpass the social, economic, and cultural balance of a mere city. So it it had to be greater than just a regular city. Yeah. So yeah. with you and your understanding of what Washington, Washington D.C. is now, do you see uh, that vision in it of it being greater than a regular city? And not just because you know, you're from that area near there or whatever and you love it, but do you actually see it as, yeah, the way it's been formed is perfect? Now, yeah, so that's difficult because as you move away from the National Mall, eh, not so much. But the National Mall area, the Capitol building, the monument, Arlington, like that region is absolutely breathtaking and perfect. And I have I have done some traveling now. I can officially say after being here for a little over a year, I've seen Rome and I've seen Paris and I've seen and, and D.C. is on that level. I, I really do. In the center of D.C., <laughs> uh, there are sections of D.C. that are not on that level, but in the, towards the center, um, it, it is, I, I, I believe. I mean, I'm biased, right? I was born in Washington, D.C., so I'm definitely a little bit biased, but it's located on the river. I think the way that they took and they carved a chunk of Maryland and a chunk of Virginia to create it, I think that kind of adds to it as well. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I think it is, Brian. I think it's right on there. <laughs> so, you know, I, I read a little bit further on here, Ed, and I thought about it, you know, as they said, that it's a little changed today from then. Now we have the – there's the upgrade of infrastructure as in, say, technology age. Yeah. But the layout is still the same of yeah. the general Washington, D.C. area. And like you said, you said the outsides of it. Well, I don't think that was foreseen to be what it is. Because you, you all the way around, and you know, Dan, going well, that all the way around Washington, D.C., I mean, it's just grown and grown. It's massive. I mean, it's it's gargantuan. But one of the th- cool things that I always thought was kind of nifty is I, I never realized that you can't have skyscrapers within a certain radius of Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a lot of... Uh you know, rules and, you know, obviously with the White House being there as well. Um, there's other cities like that. So Paris doesn't, Paris only has one, uh, like skyscraper type building and they call it with very colorful language, whether it's in French or English, but they basically call it the eyesore. It's one building. The, the you got the Eiffel tower, but like actual buildings in Paris, there's only one tower, uh, building like that. And they hate it. And it's modern looking where the rest of Paris has kind of been preserved to look like it always has, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the marble and everything. Yeah. It is an eyesore and the French hate that building. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but that's the thing. Like, could you imagine like if the way the, the, the national mall is and the way everything is there right now, you know, you got Capitol bill in one end you got, cause it's, it's kind of like a triangle in a sense, you got Capitol bill and you got the white house. And at the other end you have like the Washington monument and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you, um, the Washington monument in the middle, I'm talking about uh Lincoln Memorial, but, and then the mall, the large strip down the middle and, and just kind of how different buildings are made up. Like for instance, you have the, you have the, um, you have the Republican Republican, uh, national, uh, basically, uh, building, and they have the Democratic building, and you have a lot of different things. Um, but if you stuck a skyscraper somewhere in the middle near there, right? Yeah. Uh, let's say just behind the National Museum or Smithsonian, Smithsonian, uh, it would look hideous in yes. that area because it's beautiful. If if you ever look at a, like a picture of a, like somebody's that's taking a helicopter and they're just slightly above tree level and they take a picture out there, it just it still looks um very tranquil, uh easy going. Re- it, it gives it a relaxed feel in a sense. Although I know it's a stressful area and there's a lot going on, but it feels very relaxed when you see it. You know, it doesn't seem like a big busy city even though it is super busy. Yeah, and so the most, I think, let me think. I think the most modern looking building there, all right, the arena, but like on the mall is the African American History Museum. It's pretty kind of, actually, it's kind of Star Wars. It almost looks like a, like a Jawa ship from Star Wars. Uh, really? But, yeah. And that is like the most modern looking kind of building on the mall. Everything else is like, you know, Smithsonian Castle and, and the big, marble stairs and columns and and things like that so yeah no but it still fits in though though a little bit right it doesn't stand out uh i mean it it stands out because it's brown like like a darker brown so that kind of makes it stand out and it and it's out in the open it's not like nestled within buildings so it, it stands out but not in a bad way no 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 exactly yeah actually um it's funny you say that too, because I I just was watching the Medal of Honor show that you brought up uh, in the last in the episodes some time back there, um, 
when we talked about the Medal of Honor winners and uh, that particular individual was on there, uh, they were in that museum and they were kind of walking through it and talking about it. So it just kind of rings a bell. Um, so a, a last area of vision, Ed, and this is really about Washington and his home, so to speak. But Washington's architecture at Mount Vernon boasts elegant classical themes. Uh, but it's also fresh and full of new ideas. Uh, for his beloved home, Washington embraced and, and incorporated elements that were distinctly American, ultimately creating a hybrid design that honors the past while looking to the future. Now, have, I've never been to Mount Vernon. Have you ever been to Mount Vernon? I have not. In fact, our last trip, my wife and I talked about going there. Yeah, uh, we have. I have not been to Mount. If I did, I was like a Cub Scout and super young, maybe. Right. But I don't think I've ever been there. Yeah, I, so that's one of my goal. That is one of my lifelong goals is to visit Mount Vernon and just to kind of, kind of take in. This is this was the the grounds of Washington. This is where he and I. I really do want to see what they're talking about here, and I probably look up pictures and stuff like that. But to me, he was trying to set an idea of we're no longer British, we're no longer uh, Spanish or from Spain, we're no longer. Uh, this country or that country. we're not Irish, we're not this, we're American. So he took, when when designing things on there, on, on his plot of land, a oh, large, rather large plot of land of Mount Vernon, um, it's not as big now as it used to be because they've, they've sold off different areas, but they've kept the general area of it. But he, he kind of wanted to display, we're American. This is the American culture. This is the American architecture, which, you know, obviously it just kind of transferred from what, what he was a part of a Washington DC transferred into his, where he resided and, and finally passed away uh, in his life. Uh, I just, I thought that's kind of cool how they kind of ended the, that chapter of it about his vision is, you know, his vision continued on through his home uh, well past being a president. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, part of his legacy. I mean, Mount Vernon is there. Everybody, I don't know why I haven't been there, man. Um, but now, now you made me think. Right, so next time I go home to DC, going to Mount Vernon, Brian, because I've actually been. So I've been to the cabin where Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. Yeah, like I've been to these other like places. You know, I've actually right. been where Abraham Lincoln was shot. Mm-hmm. But I want to go to Mount Vernon. I now I want to go. And there's another one, um, Mount Montpelier. I think that was the Jefferson Estate. That's also a big attraction. Yeah, easily. It and. It's kind of like, you know, you get to look at this, right, Ed? And this is how I see it. We get to go to these places. We get to look at the past. But we also get an idea of how the past created the future. And to me, you know, we're in we're, – this leadership lesson is about George Washington's visions, right? He had many visions of how America should have been or should become throughout the years. And they were enacted in many different ways. Now, some of those visions that we talk about, they took many years – to overcome. I mean, you're talking America was formed well over 200 years ago, but within mm-hmm. the past 60 years-ish was when, you know, the real essence of slavery was supposed to end and all that because, you know, there was the still whites only thing and and, and blacks only type thing. And and we still yeah. we still have an essence of people with their closed-mindedness today, you know? Um, and to be able to have that vision at his time during the the type of thoughts and ideas that were thought around the world and to be able to kind of, he's kind of 
pushing it forward as a we want to reach this. To me, that's pretty amazing. And before before we end everything, I wanted to read this very first quote of this chapter, which I thought was kind of cool. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That's a good, that's kind of good way. I was wondering if you're going to use that quote. That's that's (laughs) odd that he's not using that quote. Yeah. Nice. I like it. It's a good quote, but it's a good way to kind of end the, end the show in a sense. We're not going to end it until you're, you're done talking, but because I think we still have to bring up um, something. Uh, The very essence of leadership is that you have to have a vision. That's Theodore Hesper. All right. So, so the essence of being a leader and having a, of leadership is having that vision because, I, and you know what it's like, man. If you're constantly putting out fires, do you ever feel like you've accomplished something? No, and I was a firefighter last week uh, at work, and it's like I did nothing today. And you really, you really did. You did something. Yeah. And you probably did something really significant in putting out those fires. But man, when you're in a reactionary mode and you're, you're fighting fires. It's like, mm-hmm. I did nothing today. Like I owe, I owe my money back to the government. You you feel that way, but you, at the same time, you accomplish something that just isn't as lucrative as you want it to be. So, and that's where I would like to say at the same time. So as a leader, when we're, or as an influencer, when we're casting a vision, we still have to be conducting that firefighting. So really, being a leader is a lot tougher than what people want it to be because not only do I have to lead, I still have to follow. I still have to conduct a day-to-day business of firefighting. Um, but at the same time, I also have to cast this vision of where we need to go from here, right? So for instance, I'm going to bring up um, my mentor who I currently uh, uh, work with now or work for in a sense right now uh, because he's he's uh, here where I'm at. Um uh, we were doing some tracking and, and, and talking about, let's say, for instance, NCORs, Ed, right? Non-Commissioned Officer Evaluation Reports. Yep. And you know just as well as I do. So an NCOR, or there, there's what's called a through date, right? So they're due on a certain date because the last one was done or this is the initial one, right? But you don't have to have it turned in. It's not considered late to the Human Resources Command until 90 days after that date. Right. But he made a statement and I loved it. He's like, we, we aren't, we don't work towards catching up. We work towards getting ahead. Right. And so when we're, mm-hmm. we're working on these things. So for instance, we have some NCORs that are, they're due, but they're not overdue that 90 days. They're, they're past, you know, they're through date. And I was explaining to, um, uh, my group of guys that work with me there, uh, at our, my company, my platoon sergeant's there, and he, I was explaining to him, hey, listen, we're going to get these off our plate. And I, I was explaining which ones. All right, these, these, I think it was like 10 or 15 people. We're going to get these off our plate and get this knocked out now. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I want you to think about the future. So these other five that look to be due in July, let's get those knocked out now too. Let's start looking at this and then we can keep this now. If something happens, right? Let's say, let's say we're doing an evaluation, and you know how this is, Ed. Let's do an evaluation report, and we're trying to, uh, we're trying to get it turned in early enough so it can get looked at. But then somebody does something great that needs to be added to it. We can always add it before hitting the submit button because you can't submit it until like 14 days prior to what is due. So you have time to get things done. You know, it's. It's just kind of how I looked at the vision of being a leader and also a follower and everything else at the same time and putting out fires at the same time. 
Yeah, no, I, I, it's hard, and it does. And I, at least I feel like initially when you're trying to like work for the future, um, I think it's hard at first. But once you get there, it's so rewarding, rather than you know seat of your pants kind of firefighting mm-hmm. uh, work. It does, and and that firefighting thing stuff. It just sucks, man. It's you just you feel like you're just never getting ahead. But if you can get a different mentality from everybody else on how to get ahead, works great. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, I, I mean, I've I've worked for leaders who that was going to happen. They were going to stay ahead all the time, and then things happen every once in a while. You get blindsided by something you didn't see coming, but um, it, it does make you. It just makes your life less stressful. You know, I was thinking, Ed. We just mentioned getting ahead multiple times. There, there's a particular head that I can think of. It's bright, shiny, full of luscious beard. <laughs> you mean uh, not the Jedi? Not the Jedi. That's right. He replied to me and said he is not a Jedi. So then I replied back. I sent him a picture of Emperor, Pal- Emperor Palpatine, otherwise known as the the evil Emperor uh, Darth Sidious. Uh, do, do you know who we're talking about, Ed, though? The shiny head, be you know. I believe we are talking about the bearded ninja. Imagine you're in a boat. The man, the myth, the legend. You're the bearded ninja. You're floating directly behind George Washington across. You know what's got to be done on the other side. But before you left, you applied your beard bomb. That's the Bearded Ninja Beer Bomb, made of snake venom and pomade. It helps you get through, and if he would have fell off that boat, he would have been plenty buoyant because he would have floated right across and then fought that revolutionary war right beside George Washington. That's a Bearded Ninja Beer Bomb bought nowhere, seen elsewhere. Bearded Ninja Beer Bomb. <laughs> he may have been in Mo- he, he may have served in Mosby's Rangers during <laughs> <laughs> He's going to kill you for that one. Oh, no. Hey, he was a ranger. Yes, that is true. Oh, so. That is true. Hey, yeah. It's a it's a lesson learned and, and we're never too old to learn new lessons. It's yeah. why we we promote lifelong learning so much. You know, I I think uh he is definitely a person we sh- we should ask about vision to. Uh in, in comparison to what we talk about with George Washington, because I know just as well as you know that he has had many a great visions that we were able to enact where we worked. Uh, and it's kind of like one of those things where it starts off with just a small conversation that turns into a fruitful product down the road. You know, I mean, I still yeah. reach, I've oh, reached yeah. back to him. You, you and I both have reached back to him to get access to uh, their BLC blackboard. And he said, well, I can't give you access to the regular one, but here's the training one type thing. And, it kind of helped me in that sense to, you know, and I mean, he wanted a training one. That was a vision that actually helped build yep. that course, those courses and help everybody get through it. But yeah, I just, I think uh, it'd be, I'm curious to hear his thoughts on how to go about vision. And actually, he, if I'm not mistaken, he's the one that brought it up to me that when we brought it up in uh, the, the vision uh episode where we talked about influences vision about a vision board and creating one and yeah. he actually has one sitting out he had one when i left the last time i saw his uh it was sitting uh right underneath his tv but above his refrigerator in his office there at the do- entrance door so huh. yeah yeah no i i remember the vision board thing because we did some research on it and i mean i have a vision board at my office i have a picture of brian shaw right on my wall next to me <laughs> uh, don't think i'm gonna 
know they've accomplished that, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> hey, you know what? Vision, uh, a vision gets you, help you get you to your goals, and and whether your goal is to be Ryan Shaw or just be able to achieve certain things, he has. I mean, it's personal goals, man. Just like with the Strava thing you talked about, I think we don't. I don't think we put enough stock, buy enough stock of the idea of leadership vision versus. We're constantly doing, like I said earlier, we're putting off the fires. We're saying, hey, do this, do that, do this. When we really need to be thinking about what's the future way ahead. Because it's the the managers or the supervisors that work uh, within our chain of command. They should be able to handle those day-to-day fires and actions. And if we train them properly, then we can cast that vision. Yeah. And then it helps teach them how to cast the same vision. Or not the same one, but a vision and then make it a fruitful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, Hey, thanks, Ed. I really appreciate you wanting to go over this, uh, this area. Cause I know we're going to actually get into the patent principles book also as another part of a series that we'll make cover. But what, what are you, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, this one was interesting. I think it's funny that you sparked the idea, but I had a different book and, and out of it, we got this episode and, you know, even though we've done vision before now we can, you can listen to that. You can go back. Right. You can go back, listen to that episode we did on vision, then come back to this episode. Right. Right after you're done, come back to this episode and you can listen and see kind of like George Washington and and how his leadership was with vision. And and you can marry these. And there's going to be other episodes that we've already gone over and you could do the same thing. Listen to the original. Yeah. Then come back. Yep come back to this one. It'll help, and I think it helps out. I think that's important. Yeah, it helps you to also uh, kind of see, hey, do we really c- uh, contradict ourselves in what we say? I'm almost certain we don't. Uh, I'm I'm pretty certain we don't, and I haven't listened to the Vision one in a while because it was a while back, uh, but it's just that idea behind it. Uh, I wanted to continue on. Also, another idea for a show that we're uh, thinking about doing is quotes. Um, I, I actually sent this idea to you, and it, I thought about influence is quotables, and how much you know, and the reason I came up, that's the funny thing, the, the way the way I came up with the idea was when I was reading this, the multiple quotes that I saw in the introduction and the first chapter, I was just like, man, you know, how often do we quote something or quote someone and we're able to learn so much from that quote and then we develop ideas and visions and everything else from that, that, I mean, it's just the smallest things that allow us to continue on. I mean, you, one of the smallest quotes ever that says so much to me, Ed, World War II, 101st Airborne Division. Okay. Nuts. Okay. That's it. Nuts. <laughs> but it says so much to me. And I'm like, you know, like, it's like that, that, that one, that one quote of nuts says, I will not surrender. I will not give up. I will fight forward. I will continue on and we will survive. Like those, like all that is said out of one word, you know, and because of what took place. And it's like, you want to continue on and you want to you know, have that essence. And I think that kind of like, that's what's allowed me to have that, that desire and burning, you know, of, of being a good leader or, or just, you know, helping others around is something like that. When, when he, when he <laughs> said nuts to the opposing force, General McCall, yeah, yeah. when he said, I actually have, the, I have his bio. Do you really? <laughs> his book. Yeah, I have his biography. I, well, I mean, I, yeah. I keep a picture of him and his, uh, and his generals, uh, the, the Bastone one. So I, that's just, me um because well that's that's actually one of my favorite places i've been in in uh in europe i've been to bastone yeah a few times yeah yeah so i've been to the like the 101st barracks and i've actually had lunch at the restaurant nuts yeah exactly which is 
named after his quote. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's just think about that quote though. I mean, he didn't just say it as a reaction to it. it was he had a vision of what needed to happen and they enact and I mean and they took the ground that they needed to. It just took time, but that's to me that's that's remarkable, man. That's good vision. Yeah, no. And the funny thing is, Brian, he's not the commander when that happens. Nope. Nope. He's he's filling in. The commander's in Washington at the time. Yeah. But he he's like Yeah, yeah, so. yeah Exactly, man. That's awesome. Um Ed, uh any any parting notes or news you want to give our listeners? Oh, well, yes, Brian. I'm glad you brought it up. For our listeners, we'd invite you to get connected with your instinctive influencers at 101 Influence on all platforms of social media. Not all, because there's so many of them. Oh, man. And I'm not twitching or switching or whatever that thing is called. But on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you can find your instinctive influencers there. Join the group. You know, hey, ask some questions. Just say something. Come up with a quote. Give us a quote. What's your favorite quote? I've got... Yeah, I, I've got num- a number of them. Of course, my favorite is General Patton. Lead me, follow me, or get out my way. Um, <laughs> but there's several. So, yeah, add the quote and then uh, go to Twitter. You can also check us out at our website at instinctiveinfluencers.com. You can go there, meet the faces, see the places, listen to the episodes. If you download the episodes from your whatever platform, whether it be Spotify, Google Play, Apple, then go ahead, give us a rating, give us a review. It means a lot to us, and it helps us develop the content and the show. Yeah, exactly, man. That's, I, you know what you said. You said that it was your favorite quote. I, I always thought it was maybe like, um, you know, the, about the planning where he's talking about uh, a, a a hasty plan today is better than a thought out plan tomorrow type thing. It's I can't remember the exact. Oh quote, yes, but you know, so. uh, it's a oh man, now you got me a plan. Uh, a plan violently executed today is better than I forget. I, I owe the I owe the listeners that. Quote. Yeah, you yeah, get it back to us. But um, right, so one last thing I want to leave with uh, those out there listening. I, we talked about casting a vision, right? And a vision of where we want to be and where it would go as a society, as individuals, as families, uh, in your workplace. I want you to think about that. Something that was once said to me not too long ago. Um, actually it was been a while ago and I've just, I've just kind of repeated over my head um, is acting out in anger is not always the wisest of decisions. Meaning no good ideas come from anger. Normally a calm, peaceful mind before you act uh, in, a, in a manner or you come up with a vision is probably a bit more fruitful than if done so in anger. I just, just a little something hmm. and people could debate that all they want, but I just, I thought about that and I wanted to say it. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I have one more thing for you, Brian. Give it to me, buddy. A good, pl- a, a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan executed next week. Nice. Violently executed. He means, he's, and when he says that, he doesn't mean violently as in tearing up things. Stuff. He means as in going headfirst into it nonstop as in this we will achieve. Yeah. That's yep. a vision. This we will. Yeah. All right, so with that, Ed, I am Brian. And I am Ed. And this has been the Instinctive Influences Podcast. Remember, George Washington has many aspects of leadership we can learn from. We're going to share those with you throughout the next year. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.